My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. In this practical episode, I want to explore some very basic level skill in fibers, in working with things that are in our landscape in plant form, about working with the fiber of sheep's wool, and also the dye plants that might go along with that. Because at this time of year, in the solstice period, you have a lot of the plants that might have been gathered and preserved for use later in the winter and similarly wool that would have been taken off the sheep as the summer gets hot and that wool could be preserved also and used again at a quieter time in the autumn and winter months. So this is the time to be preparing and to think about things that you might do later. And just to start with is the plant fibers that are wholly available to us in our landscape. There are plants that are fibers. We were talking about some of them on our recent permaculture course. We often have our visiting tutors talking about different things, but also and we learn from each other. And there was someone on our course this year who loves making fibers out of plants. And there was somebody else, two other people who were looking into plant dyes. So we had a lot of conversations about those things. And when a few years back I had experimented in fibre production and making just small craft fibres, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit, not from a level of a high level of skill, but just where you might begin and how much enjoyment and pleasure there can be from working in this way. Because I think there has been a return of interest to foraging and finding plants for food, but it's also an additional piece that you can add into your foraging practice to forage for fibres and to forage for colours without going into huge levels of production just for homespun use and the enjoyment of the craft and the preserving of these things as a basic skill. So although we were talking on the permaculture course at the beginning we were looking at formium which is not an Irish native it's a New Zealand flax that can be broken down really really easily it just strips out into its fibers from its leaves incredibly easily and I was telling people that I had learned that about that as something that New Zealand people used for their clothing for but they still preserve they can make hats and they make something it's a decorative flower out of that called Puti Puti. You can look that up and see. But we also were exploring the native plants that have 
fibrous roots or fibrous growth like nettles or bramble, or actually somebody had been making something out of rhubarb fibers. And so all of those fibers and barks and stripping things down into a layer is something that you can play with. We used to do this with grasses. It's definitely something that people know from earlier in the year. We're seeing Bridget's crosses of reeds. Taking any of these plant fibers and stripping them down and opening them up into pieces and then regathering them together into cordage is the basis that you can explore. And so, so taking these and breaking them down into their constituent fibers at even a really good to quite fine levels of stronger fibers and then regathering them together in some form of cordage or spun or woven is what creates material and what creates clothing, what creates rope and so on. So they're very easy to explore. They're not easy to actually describe some of the more detailed parts of making these things in an oral form in a podcast. But actually, if you just try some of this on your own, you'll see some of the properties and some of the ways that they come back together and combine. And then perhaps if you want to take it beyond this basic and introductory level that I'm suggesting on this podcast, you can definitely look for videos and YouTubes and so on where these are getting shared and people are experimenting with quite sophisticated ways of developing their their fiber practice. So what I would suggest you can start with is any plant fiber that seems relatively strong as you strip it down so that as you strip something into constituent fibers that it's not immediately snapping and breaking. And then you can work with it immediately wet, fresh fibers, and you can play with those. But it's also quite interesting to strip down different things and then hang them up to dry and then recombine them in their shrunken, dried out form. One of the best ways to just see how fiber will work is to rub it between your fingers or to take fibers and rub them with your hand on your leg and see how they combine. And they'll sort of fold over themselves sometimes and then that can give you a next layer of cordage. And so that's something just on plant-based fibers that you can experiment with. Finding nettles, roots, finding actually the roots of fir trees, um, finding bramble and using a tough glove to strip off all the prickly parts, but then stripping out and breaking apart the strong stretches of bramble, like this friend that I've made on our course, where try it with rhubarb fibers or celery, any anything that strips like that, or the New Zealand flax for something a bit tougher, and just pull them apart different ways. Just hang up some to dry as well. And you can plait them as one of the most basic forms of cordage is a two-strip plait or a three-strip plait where you're going, pulling one thing under another or in the base of three over and under another fiber. 
And actually, it's something that just that you realize if you've ever worked with longer hair and plaiting, that you have this connection in our own bodies to working with a fiber that is our own hair. And hair was something that was reused, sometimes horsehair was used, different things that were washed and used for making rope in the past um, from plant-based items, but also from, as we move on to thinking about hair, or in the case of sheep, it's wool, which is obviously a kind of hair, it's a sheep hair that has this really fine, fine fibers that then bunch up on the sheep and keep sheep warm. And when I was up in Donegal with Judith Hode, we were talking about spinning wool, and she told me that there are, at the microscopic level in wool, there are millions of little hooks, and that's actually what causes it to bunch up on sheep, but also what makes it such a useful fiber for humans. And to work with wool is a kind of a sad situation in Ireland is that wool is not as available from Irish sheep as you might like to think it is, um, partly because the way that modern economic systems work and modern materials and large-scale manufacturing of clothing that has taken over in the world means that the idea of homespun, homemade clothing is not as available as it used to be in terms of a market for the wool from sheep. And as I mentioned in a different episode of this podcast, there are also reasons why sheep's wool is less suitable for clothing, certainly for softer clothing, due to changes in the breeds for all sorts of reasons. And so it is a little bit harder to get hold of Irish wool because at the moment, for many farmers, it doesn't pay them to shear their sheep because they're not getting the price it would cost them to pay for their shearing. So as they take a fleece off, they're not paid the cost it took to harvest the wool. And there are other products getting made out of wool now, but actually not in Ireland. I know in Wicklow there is a sheep's wool insulation company, but they actually don't make the sheep's wool insulation there. They do sometimes buy in sheep's wool, but it gets sent to Germany where it's made into wool insulation. So it might seem like it's hard to get hold of sheep's wool, but if you're talking about experimenting just with small dimension fiber, just to get a feel for it, if you go for a walk in the countryside near sheep fields, you'll often find pieces of wool hanging on barbed wire, and so you can gather up fibers. If you're gathering up your bramble on a hedge, you might also be able to gather up just small pieces of wool fibers. Wool was taken in this way and generally it was washed. So you can wash wool. And then, like all the other fibers, it's a question of seeing how it behaves. One of the things that is amazing about wool is how woven it already is when you get a piece of wool, it's already to try to draw out one individual thread of a piece of wool is an experiment worth trying. You can 
You have to tease it out and tease it out and tease it out until you end up with just a single thread. And that's it's incredibly difficult because it's very, very fine. So what all of the crafts did in relation to how wool was worked with for spinning and so on was to just work with it a bit like you're working with a mat of human hair and either deliberately teasing it out so as the fibers lie in a particular direction, just like you do with a hairbrush on matted hair. So that was done by carding, or you can just pull and regather and pull and regather until you have fibers kind of lying in one direction. And then just like with the plant fibers, it's about twisting and plaiting in some way. That used to be done with a drop spindle, where the weight of the drop spindle was simply, you can do this just literally with um, something that's a weight, a small block of wood or something like that. And you have a, a, the, the fibers that you've gathered and you start to kind of spin, attach them to maybe a, a little hook or something on your bit of wood and you just start to let it spin. But I think before you get to that, the same process that I was talking about with the plant fibers where you pull and roll them on your thigh and pull and roll and pull and roll. And you can kind of get a feel at that very basic level for how you can have thick or thin thread and thin wool where the more that you've pulled, rubbed and, and regathered in a kind of twist, the thicker or the thinner the wool gets. And then when you move on to playing with a drop spindle, you get the same idea so as they end up with the thicknesses that you want. And that's something that if you wanted to go to a master spinner and learn that skill on a spinning wheel, that's exactly what they do so well is they, they're feeding in clumps of carded wool. They use uh, two things that look like two large hairbrushes with metal hooks on them and that's they would card out their wool to get the fibers running in the same direction and then they'd kind of take bunches of that and feed it in to the spinning wheel that pulls it out like the weight pulls it out or like you can pull and rub in your hands and they get that skill to a level where it's incredibly even so that the amount of wool fed in is the same and consistent with practice and skill as they want it to be so they can spin out a very fine fine wool or they can spin it out a bit thicker and chunkier which then might be knitted into jumpers so the finer wools would have been set up on a loom where you have the weave and the weft so you have different fibers tied onto the loom going one way and then by lifting the fibers up and down a shuttle went across and they would lay in these finer layers across the fibers again you got these different kinds of thicknesses of tweeds and wool material even rugs something you can do as a way of experimenting is working with some thicker fibers is just to set up a very basic type of weaving loom that just can lift two sets of 
threads and you can go under, over, under, over, and you can create small rugs and mats for a table very easily. And you can do that too with plant fibers, is make a placemat. Um, you can make little baskets. You can do so much with fiber. So I hope that you go and gather and experiment with those. And then the other thing that relates to these fibers is the idea of, well, in the place of the plant fibers, they already retain the different plant colors that you might want to work with. So you can get that directly from the natural colors occurring in the plants. And if you want to work with wool or if you feel like buying some material like calico and other kinds of natural materials, you can also experiment with natural dyes. And there are there are loads and loads of books on different natural dyes, but a few of the very simple ones are actually the kitchen dyes, the things that you might buy or have in your kitchen. So you can dye things with onion skins, you can dye things with beetroot, you can dye things with turmeric, and also with teas and coffees. But you can also get into it in a little bit more detail and you can figure out what is in the landscape. There are lichens that were used. There are colors that are plants specifically grown for dye, like woad, which was the blue color. There are other things that were used from the Irish landscape. And, and this is why it has kind of a connection to the color schemes that are on the hills of Ireland and the color schemes that were in the different materials that were used that I was talking about in the other thread about our connection to our ancestors on our land and the skills they had, that the colours of the tweed in Donegal was reminiscent of the colours and patchwork of the landscape. So this very direct relationship between the dye plants and the things that people wore. And some of them were much more vibrant than we Imagine because when you look at some of the old pictures, there's you know the pictures themselves were faded and they weren't coloured. And there's bit, there's a lovely book, Old Ireland in Colour, that I um, have been looking at recently, and they've recolored the photographs that were taken in black and white based on pretty accurate research into these dye plants and. And it's actually really surprising how colourful you had the blues and the yellows and oranges and browns that were being used not just from the native colours of the wool, but also with great expertise in dyeing. So it's well worth experimenting, just chopping up that material and soaking it in warm water and see what the colours are that come out. And sometimes they react with different surfaces and substances. I was recently experimenting with wood dyes, actually. And uh, a, a surprising one is putting metal into water or metal into vinegar and seeing what comes out if you then paint it on wood because it reacts with the tannins in the wood and you get blues and greys and different kinds of color forms. So the same is true as you combine things together. And then if you want it to be a fixed color, there were natural, it's called sizes, um, that people use to kind of fix a color. I think salts 
and different things were used to keep a color from washing out again. So it's just a bit of fun to realize that there's these craft items that you see around you that you have at some level an innate understanding of fiber if you have ever worked with hair, as I said, and how it knots and how it tangles and how it deliberately becomes cord if you start actually trying to work with it and then what you can weave and make and the different colors that come into that then. And just be interested to see what your reaction is, whether it's like the people who were wanting to buy these things because help them connect, or whether it's a different type of connection you find from exploring fibers and weaving things together. And for me, I, I guess I like the symbolism of that because I think especially at solstice time, there's the reweaving of community and we're really doing that very much as we come back outside as restrictions in the pandemic are lifted. I've got to travel to another county to go to Donegal and to sit outside and was listening to a lot of stories and sort of reweaving our community. So I, I really like as a storyteller and someone who likes to find threads of connection, I really like the symbolism in spinning because it has all of those kind of language that also remains like spinning a yarn. And so I like the symbolism of that as well as spinning wool. The second practical skill that I want to talk about is a gardening one. At this time of year, I've been sowing the seeds, potting them on into bigger plants, and finally moving them outside into the ground. There are lots of different processes that people follow for planting. I practice a no-dig version of gardening, or a minimum till, trying to disturb the soil and all of the microbiota and all of the fungal networks that are in the garden as little as possible. This is much easier in our perennial gardens where we grow things that come back by themselves every year. All of the trees and bushes and berries and ground layers that are herbs and some of the perennial vegetables like Babington's leek, they all come back by themselves. So they don't disturb the soil except to break through it in small ways and grow. And so the thatch of roots is still intact underneath and the landscape of the soil is full of niches where the bacteria and the fungi can grow. That's a bit harder in an annual garden where you are planting regularly. So what we try to do is disturb it in the most minimal ways. We have a five-year rotation in our garden, and so every five years it is disturbed because we put potatoes in, and so we lift those out, and you get the soil disturbed from lifting out potatoes. And then after that, I'll generally do a mixed crop or then roots, so that it's quite clear of weeds. But other parts of the garden where I'm doing other kinds of growing, I can leave certain amount of cover or mulch or something called a green manure, which is to sow something that you deliberately leave in the ground over winter and then you chop and drop it. So it's a growing green thing 
So Lamanthes is an interesting one. It's a kind of poached eggplant flower. There's vetches, there's clovers that I often sow underneath the peas and beans, or there's facilia is a nice one. And all of those can be chopped and dropped. But so too can any other thing that has grown. So whenever that you leave bare ground, nature's very quick to try to cover it over. And so this year, I wanted to tell you about something I did for where all the squash and courgettes are going in the garden. That had become quite grassy and uh, weedy. There was a mixture of old green manures were growing in it, but there was also dead nettle, which had come up, and I'd left it longer to in flower because the bees were loving it. So I also do that, leave things longer for the bees and then use them as my chop and drop mulches. So I would do that with a lot of the kales that have been in flower, and they're covered in bees. In the case of the beds that I put the courgettes and squash into, they were covered in dead nettle and full of bees, so I didn't want to take that off. So all I did then was a very simple practice. I had grown the courgette and squash on into bigger pots so that they were quite decent-sized, substantial plants, and that's important if you're going to practice the kind of thing I do. It also depends, of course, on what part of the country you're in. I think I might have spoken before about how we have a lot less rain in the East Coast now, and our mulches don't tend to give me too much slug problems. Also, in the past, I've always had ducks in the garden, khaki campbells that come and go in and under everything, all the little bits of mulch and so on, and they get at slug eggs and slug babies. Now this year I haven't had any ducks, so I'm being a bit more careful, making sure I have bigger plants going out to minimize slug damage. So for the beds where I had all that growing, what I did was I have a little hand scythe, like a kind of sickle-shaped scythe. I have other kinds of uh, blade tools where you can chop and drop. I've got a kind of a long thing that's like a, almost like a golf club. It doesn't look like a golf club, but the way you swing it is like a golf club. It's a double-sided flat blade. And you could also use a strimmer. So what I do is just chop down to the closest to their roots at the surface of the soil, everything that's growing. And that means I haven't disturbed the soil at all. I just chop it down. And then I would empty a compost heap so it can be one that is quite fresh like not completely broken down but fairly broken down to that sort of fibrous level that compost heaps go and basically all I did was make mounds of compost of what I chopped and dropped and in between just left the material directly on the soil and then because We did do a little strimming of paths. I lifted up the grass from the paths as well and put in between so that all of the soil has been covered by a layer of chopped vegetative matter. And then in the piles or mounds, I've directly planted in the courgettes and squash. And because they are such big leafed things, they will grow out almost touching each other. They're quite close together. They've got lovely fertile compost to get themselves rooted into, and they will continue to root on 
through the now rotting vegetative matter under the compost and deep into the soil as well, because they're raised beds, they will access all that material to grow in. And they quite like very fertile stuff and they can take it as quite rich compost. So that's one way to avoid digging. And just to mention that I do a similar approach in the forest garden, the perennial areas, if we're planting a new area there. On our permaculture course recently, we did a new patch. And there I we chop back whatever's growing. In this case, there was grass. We didn't chop the bramble. We trampled it and trampled bramble because that way it weakens it more with broken stems. It's still trying to fix itself from the roots. So by trampling bracken or bramble, um, it weakens it more than if you chop it where it sort of that actually strengthens bramble. So we kind of trample that down and then we put a thick layer of cardboard on top of the bramble and then a thick layer of mulch on top of that. And then we planted in various things in kind of mounds, in this case of bark mulch and straw. And again, with the roots not down into the soil, although in some places we cut a little X in the cardboard so that and and pulled back to soil. But even if the mulch is quite rotty uh, and old and wet, then you don't even need to do that. It'll root itself through the mulch and through the later the wet cardboard and find roots. So we put in a few new bush fruit like berries. I think we used red currants and maybe a Worcesterberry, a kind of gooseberry. And then we also used some Jerusalem artichoke, which are quite tenacious as a barrier to against the area where the brambles might begin coming back. And this doesn't totally get rid of all the brambles. It is possible if you're in a flatter field, you might go in and actually try to remove bramble, cut them all the way back to their crowns, mulch it really, really heavily, and then come back and, and you'll see the beginnings of each of the bramble crowns coming through the mulch maybe after a winter as uh, someone I know did that this year, and you pull out the crowns later. Our ground is so stony and rocky that it's very marginal field, that trying to get at bramble crowns that kind of hide in and behind the rocks and almost underneath them come out from there, and some of these are huge rocks, it's very difficult to get them all gone. So instead, we we're just building soil right directly on top of them and also on top of the smaller rocky areas and that's pretty much what nature does slowly but surely it drops vegetative matter each year so whether that's the bracken that grows up in those sort of areas and dies back or even little birch trees that are pioneers that will seed right in between rocks or gorse which is similar all of those subsequently may die especially if there's not a lot of space for roots and they drop themselves as both leaves and branches and all sorts piles up and eventually you get more soil. So we're just accelerating that process and we're letting the biology break everything down and the worms and all the creatures that go into detritus or that kind of vegetative rot that love all of the kind of rotting material. And that's a way to create soil in a faster sort of way. Right, it's almost like composting in situ. 
So I just thought those are good things to know about, to see if those might be things that suit your growing style, allow you to take care of your soil and minimum till and low disturbance.